Our coverage of the state versus Derek Chauvin continues. Professor David Schultz from the University of Minnesota Law School and Hamlin University returns to walk us through. I'm Lawrence Clady, and this is Legal Talk Today. Welcome back, listeners. Thank you for being here. As you heard in the opener, we're going to be discussing the Derek Chauvin criminal trial again. And today we're going to focus a little bit more on the witnesses and some of the evidence uh, presented. And, you know, if you haven't done so already, we did a couple of episodes earlier on this. There are uh, one or two back in our archive. And I recommend you go to those first and uh, take a listen there. And they're numbered so you can find them a little bit easier. And so before we get in our coverage today and welcome our guests back, I want to thank our sponsor for their generous support, NOTA. NOTA is powered by MT Bank because you went to law school to be a lawyer, not an accountant. Take advantage of NOTA, a no-cost IOLTA management tool that helps solo and small law firms track client funds down to the penny. Visit trustnota.com forward slash legal to learn more. That's NOTA spelled N-O-T-A. Terms and conditions may apply. All right. Let me welcome back our return guest, Professor David Schultz. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing great. Thank you very much. And thanks to the audience. Absolutely. You know, thank you for coming back on. You know, I uh, really uh, needed your expertise here. You know, criminal law is not my thing. You know, I was I, I, I kind of did more work in real estate and, you know, business matters. And so, you know, I don't know all of the ins and outs. So really appreciate you coming on and kind of walking us through uh, all of this. And I, you know, I got to say, just with the coverage that I've seen so far, you know, I've been very impressed with the lawyers on both sides. And I think they are just uh, master strokes of question and uh, reaction and thinking on their feet. I've just I've been very impressed. And so what I wanted to do with this episode, Professor, was compare notes with you. I'm not sure we're going to um, zero in on all the same things. And you know, you having much more criminal experience, probably going to get more to the point of what matters in this case. And for me, it's probably going to be more of a media-based impressions of what's going on. But I definitely wanted to uh, bring you on, compare some notes and see where we are. So why don't we use that as our opening question? You know, I think we're, um, what, is it day seven? Uh, I think we're day eight right now in the trial, right? Correct. Right. And remember, so far, it's only the prosecution that has presented its side of the case yet. It hasn't rested and the defense hasn't presented its side yet. So keep that in mind that we're really only looking at one side having made its case so far or in the process of making its case. Okay. And so, you know, just in terms of, you know, some of the uh, the witnesses that we've heard from, you know, different parts of the community, some of bystanders and things. But you know, tell us about some of the witnesses that we've heard from already in this case uh, presented from the prosecution. Well, we've really gone through, I think, three stages of witnesses at this point. The initial set of witnesses were the bystanders and people who saw what was actually happening, as well as people who knew George Floyd. And remember, under Minnesota law, there's a doctrine called spark of life, which allows in homicides for individuals to talk about who the victim was like. So a little bit was in terms of just describing George Floyd, the person. And then, of course, what we had at the same time were some of the initial witnesses who were using their cell phones to maybe record what was happening, including the famous uh, cell phone video that many of us have seen, and also just to describe what they saw during the time leading up to the police confronting George Floyd. And during those, let us say, fateful, you know, nine to 10 minutes that were occurring. So what we heard is, is that group of witnesses. Then we started to hear a, a series of experts, experts in the sense of other police officers, people expert in the use of force. And now we're starting to transition into medical experts in terms of talking about issues about possibly cause of death, 
and about how they respond to medical emergencies. So that's been the train so far in terms of, let us say, how the prosecution has rolled out its case and setting up its arguments. You know, one of the things that jumped out to me pretty early on was how active uh, the judge has been in this case. And it seems he's trying to keep a lid on some of these, um, you know, past experiences with police officers, I guess, in an effort not to pollute the well of testimony. And so what I did notice with some of the bystander witness accounts was that there seemed to be sort of this initial shared distrust of the police. And I was wondering, did any of that resonate? And if so, you know, what, what should we take from that? Well, you're clearly correct that the judge Cahill is is heavily policing this uh, because one of the things that he's worried about is is what I'm going to call a dichotomy that at the end of the day, this is technically and legally only what a trial about one person accused of committing homicide against somebody else. But for everybody else outside the trial, it's about what? It's about racism on trial. It's about police use of force on trial. And the judge has to be sure that this that latter set of impressions about racism and about policing in general don't affect the case. Because if they do, then that means that the jury may very well be making your decisions based not upon the facts of the case, but upon broader social issues, upon political considerations of which would be inappropriate. So that's partly why he's been active. And also the fact that that in pretrial motions, there were varieties of questions regarding could some of the past behavior of police officers, could some of the past behavior of George Floyd be introduced? And he's been kind of threading a needle, allowing a certain amount in as opposed to excluding others, again, for the purpose of relevance, evidence, and making sure that it doesn't taint the testimony. So it's a complex trial to do navigating what I call the real trial versus the trial that's taking place in the court of public opinion and in the media and keeping the two separate. One of the things I think that just uh, from watching the video that jumps out at me and kind of related to my uh, previous question here is uh, the plexiglass and, you know, uh, taking the masks on and putting them back on it. It does feel like there's a little bit of a communication breakdown. So I want to ask this quick follow up in terms of that distrust from some of the witnesses Now the judge has jumped on it. But it does feel like there is an opening when the prosecution asks a question. Uh, he seems to be reloading for he or she has been uh, reloading for the next question. And that seems to be the opportunity when some of these witnesses have kind of shared a personal account. The judge jumps right on. Do you think that's kind of a matter of just the plexiglass? Do you think it's the way the prosecution structuring the question? Any thoughts there? I think it's a little bit of all of that. But cl- again, the prosecution has a a narrow needle to thread in terms of being able to get certain types of evidence in while at the same time trying to prevent, I think, the defense from being able to now bring more information in, perhaps about George Floyd or about putting in other types of stuff that's going to hurt the prosecution's case. So I think there's a lot of of difficulty and a lot of contemplation going on in terms of how each side is phrasing its questions. And Good trials are like chess matches in the sense of your good chess matches are thinking two or three moves ahead. I think both sides here are thinking two or three moves ahead or questions ahead. And in trying to anticipate if they ask a particular question, um, what might be the likely objection or possibility that it gives the other side an opportunity to do something with. 
Yeah, motions on the stand. And so, you know, this is something that I've been paying attention to in the uh, the headlines. And just you and I were talking about this a little bit in the pregame. And one of the things I've been trying to be very careful of in my coverage of this is not to let necessarily someone writing in the media kind of steer my viewpoint in one direction or the other. So I'll see, I'll see the headline. They'll talk about an emotional testimony. I'll get the name of the person. And then I make sure to watch that in the video, try to get my own original impressions. And so I've definitely been getting a lot out of that. And so emotions from the stand. And so one thing that kind of jumped out at me, Professor, I'd love to get your thoughts on this. You know, many of these bystanders, um, I think basically all the bystanders did not have any relationship with George Floyd in advance. And yet we've seen some emotional testimony related to that. And I understand it's a very emotional case. The, uh, the imagery is very vivid. Um, you know, obviously the, the viral video, the viral pictures, you know, invoked a lot of visceral reaction. And so I just wanted to kind of tap into your opinion on that. You know, some of the emotional, not necessarily outbursts, but some of the breakdowns, some of the crying, some of uh, maybe some of the frustration and anger that's come out in the testimony. Have you seen any examples that, uh, you know, maybe hurt or helped the prosecution's case? Well, I think what was very important were some of the testimony that talked about how when they were watching Derek Chauvin put the knee on on the neck and how they're shouting to him, saying things to him, how he didn't seem to react, didn't seem to to budge whatsoever. They were pleased to say, check his pulse, et cetera, et cetera. It just almost seemed to be frozen. And the reason why this is important, um, I think the prosecution has been adept at doing this, is to try to argue and say that, listen, even though um, it was clear or should have been clear that there was something wrong, the fact that he, he didn't react to police, didn't react to what others saw was a horrifying situation. That may be evidence of what, for example, a depraved mind, which would be critical for third degree murder charge or perhaps culpable negligence, despite the fact that people were pleading with him and saying, this is this is horrible. He seemed indifferent to what's going on. And so I think what's happening here is that the prosecution is really trying to show to the jury, look at how horrific it was. Everybody around could see how horrific it was. Yet the officer himself seemed completely blinded, seemed completely indifferent to what was happening. And thinking about the fact, to remind everybody, you not only have to show that the officer caused the death of George Floyd, but you have to prove a particular state of mind. I think those audience reactions were critical to helping the jury perhaps reach an inference of what culpable negligence or a depraved mind which are very critical in terms of of approving the the guilt of Derek Chauvin. You know, you know, for me, a couple standouts in the testimony related to sort of these uh, emotional breakdowns and outbursts. You know, there was a gentleman by the name of Charles McMillan, and he's kind of an older guy that happened to be in the area at the time. And and uh, for those that have seen some of the uh, the security footage and the and some of the body cams from the police, he's the older gentleman that is trying to talk George Floyd down during the arrest. So you know, while George is uh, struggling with the police and resisting arrest, he's uh, he's the the gentleman in the background, you know, trying to encourage George go along with the police. You know, just go along with it. And, you know, I felt that his, you know, he broke down on the, on the, on the stand and cried. And, you know, to me, that was sort of the resonance of humanity uh, of what this case is about. And I think that that was incredibly impactful on the jury, that my opinion. And I think that it sort of uh, resonates the importance of this case. And so I think that's going to go into the checkbox for the prosecution. 
one emotional sort of outburst that I don't think is going to help uh, the prosecution was uh, there was a firefighter, Genevieve Hansen. And I don't know if it was the way, uh, Professor, that the, uh, the evidence was presented in court, but she basically kind of did this big loop around uh, the scene and kind of got into it, jumped in. She's she's uh, obviously a first responder. The police, police officers are first responders. She gets into the scene and maybe it was the timing, maybe it was the way that she presented it, or maybe it was the questioning, but it felt to me like she was pretty quick to judgment on what was going on in the scene before having an opportunity to really see and hear everything. And, you know, she was uh, one of the people kind of berating the police at the time. And some of that, you know, carried into her testimony and, you know, some of that, you know, with the lawyers, uh, she was a little bit combative and even so much so that the judge jumped in and corrected her a few times. Those most animated, I saw the judge and, and all of the witnesses that I've seen so far. So I, you know, I'm sure the, the emotions are sincere. It's just, I think the way that she communicated, I don't think helped the prosecution as much as uh, maybe she wants to. So why don't we, why don't we try to transition over to vantage point context and timing? And I, and I know that this is always a part of uh, criminal cases, but I think this one in particular, because the engagement with George Floyd happened across the street. A lot of the fighting happened on a different side of the street. Witnesses kind of came on at different times. I think plays a huge role in this. And so I want to get your impressions on that. You know, How impactful has timing, context, and vantage point been in this case to you? It's always important in every case, but what I think has been important here is the fact that from the day one, I think the prosecution has really wanted to emphasize that the nine minute and 29 second video practically speaks for itself. And even though no evidence speaks for itself, we have an impression. We watch that, we see what we think we see, but what the prosecution has been trying to do is to provide other corroborating evidence to say that, yes, in fact, that video is accurate in terms of what what people saw and what was going on. But as we're starting to see, both from the prosecution and more importantly, I think the defense is doing this. The defense is saying that, listen, that video doesn't capture everything that's going on. It misses things that took place before the video, and it misses things that people might have seen from different vantage points in terms of, for example, was the knee really on the neck? What were the police really responding to? What was the crowd like? And so the so again, as I said to my students several times, evidence doesn't speak for itself. It has to be put into context. And there are multiple contexts here in terms of the different vantage points. And both prosecution and defense are trying to define theirs. I think especially what the prosecution wants to do is to say that, look, this is an officer who was indifferent to the life of George Floyd, that he he used force in a way that was impermissible. On the other hand, the context that the defense is trying to set up is to say this was a potentially out of control situation with somebody who was maybe resisting arrest, who was on perhaps drugs, things were uncertain, and the officer, given that situation, acted reasonably given the commotion and the possible danger that was occurring at that time. That's a great segue into my next question about the timeline and fact elements that have been, you know, flushed out through these uh, these different camera angles that you were talking about. And I think that uh, one that really uh, resonated with me was the store clerk's testimony, kind of walking through some of the surveillance video and then talking about receiving the counterfeit. We hope you're enjoying our continuing coverage of the Derek Chauvin trial with Professor David Schultz. We'll pick up where we left off in the next episode, and we'll talk further about timelines, 
vantage points, use of force, and what we should make out of George Floyd's companion, Mr. Morris Hall, not testifying. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening. Have a great day, everybody. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.